Welcome to Fraud Busting. I'm Tracy Brown, the Fraud Busting Body Language Expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion dollar business deals. It's time to dive in so you can beat the fraudsters at their own game and build your bottom line. My friend Linda Larson visits Fraud Busting today. You are gonna be blown away by her story of being abducted and held at gunpoint. She'll reveal how her intuition and attention to communication in this intense situation allowed her to save her own life. And you're gonna have to listen to find out exactly how she did it. She eventually became a trial consultant, helping lawyers persuade juries. You'll learn how you can use her tools to build rapport with anyone so you can get yourself out of the toughest situations. Enjoy. Linda Larson, welcome to Fraud Busting. I am so excited that you're here. Now, y'all, let me tell you a little bit about um, the past year and how Linda has been amazing. So we're in a little um, text, I guess, group, text message group of professional speakers who uh, had our livelihoods just ripped from us uh, during the, uh, the pandemic, like all at once. And so we had, we had this really fun little chat group and I've gotten to know uh, you, Linda, a lot better just through that. She is funny and um, and just a ton of fun. And um, and I knew, Linda, that you, uh, well, let's, let, let's back up a little bit. What has been your go-to snack during the pandemic? Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> oh, my Lord. Okay, you go right for the juggler, don't We're you? Going for okay. it, yes. Oh, honey, it's ice cream. I mean, I could just face plant in a gallon of ice cream every night and just lay there and just like, you know, I love myself some ice cream. So that'll, that'll catch you. That'll get, you know, catch up to you after a while. So I kind of have to moderate myself. We never got into this. You have a flavor. I mean, this, this addiction to ice cream is so extreme that our other friend actually shipped you ice cream uh, like six or eight gourmet pints of ice cream. So what, what is your favorite flavor? Okay. 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 So this is a great story. Uh, my husband listens to splendid table on NPR and it's, they interview great chefs. And one time he heard this woman being interviewed who had an ice cream company. Her name is Jenny J E N I. And she had come up with all these masterful recipes for ice cream. So he bought the book, brought it home or had it sent to me. And then he bought a commercial sized ice cream maker and we started making her recipes. Unbelievable. Like something you've never tasted. You never tasted ice cream like this. You go, what is this? It's so amazing. And I know the secret, but I'm not going to tell you. So anyway, then all of a sudden, like two weeks ago, we saw this little ice cream place. Okay. Uh, and this was 10 years ago. He bought me the book. So this little ice cream, new ice cream store went in, I had a taste of it and I went, that is familiar. I know that taste. And we went back outside and looked up at the top and it was Jenny's. She apparently now has these little stores. So you want some ice? I don't even get paid for this. I need to call her and be her ambassador or something. Um, Yeah. Uh, So Jenny, J-E-N-I, they now sell them in the grocery stores. Now, but what is the flavor? Can you tell us the flavor? Or is it top secret? Well, it's not top secret. But she makes a base. Her ice cream is a base. And in the base of all her creams that I can Mm -hmm. think of, they have cream cheese. Just not a lot, but a little cream cheese. Uh And then they put all the different flavors. Roasted cherry goat cheese. Oh, be still. I know. I know. Mm -hmm. I know. It's like, I like the brown butter brickle almond. Uh Okay, so you got me in the wrong headspace now. Okay, okay, okay. we'll stop that. We'll, I can see I can see it's shifting your mindset. Okay, so okay. let's get into why you came. I mean, like, besides the cream cheese, why I wanted um, <laughs> to have you on fraud busting because you have a story that I wish you didn't have, but you do have it. But I think you've really grown from this situation and, and you're able to use it professionally now, because most of the time what you do is, is you're a funny keynote speaker and you're super funny and, and um, as a result, very popular. And so, um, and, and I got to say, you're in, a, you're in the Hall of Fame, right? The, the Speaker's Hall of Fame, which is a big deal. So um, let's get into this story. And I know you can parlay that into what you're doing now, because you're not only a funny keynote speaker, 
you're a trial consultant and um I was a trial consultant. You were a trial consultant. Okay. I was. Okay, you were. So yeah. let's just jump in. What happened? I know it was in the 70s. Let's go for it. Okay. Actually, it was uh it was 1969. 69. Okay. 1969. I was 21 years old. Stop doing math. I can see I your was doing math. <laughs> I'm now. Okay. Okay. Right. I was 21, it's 1969, and I was um, working in a law office as a front desk receptionist and a secretary, but mostly at the front desk. And I was making $55 a week and I was uh, on food stamps. I remember I had a, I was married and divorced and I had a two-year-old baby boy. Oh boy. And, yeah. So you were winning it, at life. Winning baby, knocking it out of the park. Yeah. And I, I, um, <laughs> I also was suffering from clinical depression and anxiety and panic attacks that truly were so horrific at the time um, that there were times I came very close to taking my own life. I mean, I know that you will have some listeners who have experienced depression or anxiety to the point, that point, it's it's just unimaginable and uh, it's hard to even describe unless you've been there, you don't know what it's like, but it's like, you can't hold on anymore. You, oh, wow. you, there's, okay. It's like, if I have to experience what I'm experiencing right now in the next hour, I can't make it another hour. So yeah, that was what I was, that was what I was experiencing at that time in my life. Well, I woke up on the morning of December 5th, 1969. Hmm. And I remember very specifically, boy, as soon as the alarm went off, I, you know, I woke up, I got my awareness where I was and then boom, I fell right into that dark place. And I remember, I remember lying in bed and just pulled the covers up under my neck. I remember shaking. And I remember thinking that I couldn't make it. That's it. I mean, I could not make it for another minute, I thought. And, and I thought to myself, okay, I'm, I'm ready to die. Mm-hmm. And I kept hearing those words in my head, I'm ready to die. And that was the time, just about then, I heard my son stirring in the room next to me, waking up. And I knew that I had to figure out a way to make it. I mean, I had to. I had to. So, um, summoning courage from, I don't even know where I got up. I got him dressed and fed. I got me dressed. I, I, I took him to daycare and then it's kind of like my car. I was, my car was driving me. I mean, I I was going through these motions that I did every morning and I dropped him off. And then it's kind of like my car just went to work. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't know where else to go. And I, I went to work. I sat behind that receptionist desk. I, I remember just feeling like I was hanging on to my sanity by the teeny tiniest little thread. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I couldn't breathe, but there I was. Right, right. And that was the morning at 11.15 a.m. when in through the front door burst a man in a convict prison uniform. Orange or? A, no. Or was it stripes? No. It, was, it felt like it was white. Uh, you know what? That, dang, that's a good memory. I have no idea, but it okay. seemed like it was a white with, you know, with big numbers on it or something. Okay. Um, he was uh, brandishing a 357 Magnum. Mm. He, um, after a short time, he grabbed me by the arm. He slammed the gun in my face. He said to the two attorneys who were standing in the room at, by this time, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm taking her with me. Don't call the cops or I will kill her. Give me your car keys. Give me your money. And they did. And it turns out he was in a, a, like he had, he was on a road gang nearby and he had jumped the guard and stolen the gun and fled on foot and went into the first office. It was mine. Well, he grabbed me by the arm. He slammed the gun in my, in my, in my um, side and pulled me across the street to where one of the lawyer's cars were parked, the keys Uh that he gave him. And um, <laughs> all of a sudden it just occurred to me, I mean, think about the emotional state that I was in before the guy came in the room. Yeah, I talk mean, about law of attraction. Like, wow. Oh, listen, you just nailed it. You just nailed it. You see, here's the deal. I'm just going to sidebar here. Yeah, yeah. I, I had very, very, very much felt like a victim in my life. I really, I, I was. I was in from a home where there was a lot of physical and emotional abuse. So I had the victim mentality. And I think there's this thing that happens in life. I think this guy was running down the street and he got the unmistakable whiff of a victim right through that door and ran in and got me. I mean, 
I mean, I, okay, I'm, I'm making up that story in my head, but it feels pretty right to me. I mean, uh, you know, we attract stuff and I sure we do, you know, it's, it's all for us to learn. Uh, yep. so, okay. So the guy has you by yeah. the arm gun in your, in your ribs mm-hmm. and what happens. Okay. We get in the car. He tells me to drive. Um, he leaves the gun in my ribs. I'm driving. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I don't remember breathing. I mean, I, I think back on it right now and I just even thinking about it. I'm not even breathing, but no, anyway, he, see, yeah, it has a physical, like there's a real emotional effect going on right now. Oh, so right. Don't, don't go too far down into it. Like just let's, we can no. skip the top if we need to. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. I believe that people can talk about anything that they want to talk about if they have dealt with it, made sense of it, put it in its proper place, um, have made peace with it, then you can talk about it. So I'm not going off the rails on you here. All right, <laughs> so, all right, okay. Yeah, so anyway, um, he directed me this way, that way, drive through window of a liquor store because oh. he took the money from one of the lawyers and he made me drive through a liquor store and, um, and to get a bottle of wild turkey. I didn't even know what that was, but anyway, so imagine... There's the window. Yeah, he's yeah. over here. There's the window. You're the person behind the window standing there, and I'm saying to you, "Could I have a bottle of, of wild turkey?" Uh-huh. And I remember thinking, maybe this whole nonverbal body language doesn't work because uh-huh. in my brain I was zapping this guy yeah. with, "I'm being held hostage, and there was a gun in my side." I mean, I was just uh-huh. zapping him with this. He didn't get it. <laughs> he didn't get it. He gave me the, okay. No. Okay. He gave me the stuff. I gave him the money. We drove away. He ultimately directed me to a friend of his house. Um, the, the bad guy. The bad guy mm-hmm. uh, directed me to this house, uh, which was belonged to a friend of his. And so, just bear in mind when I pulled into the, it was a long, long dirt road that ended in a cul-de-sac, like. There were no other houses around. It was just long dirt road, dirt cul-de-sac. There was the house. So I kind of pulled in sort of facing the house. And he, this is big. This is a moment in time. This is what I want to explain that I don't know everyone understands is that when you, probably if you've had the experience you do, when you are in that kind of a critical life-threatening situation, uh, there's something in neuroscience that says we can, consciously process seven bits of information per second plus or minus two yep when you're in a situation like that you are processing billions of bits of information almost consciously i mean like i was picking up china i i was reading everything yeah you have a heightened awareness right because you're fight or flight right and so you gotta like it's minute to minute if you're gonna switch between fight flight or there's freeze also fight flight freeze right okay okay so you pull pull in Okay. And then he, he jumps out of the car and says, get out to me. And he jumps out of his, his side. Now in this moment, let's slow it down. Slow the moment down. I have the keys are in the ignition. I do not take the keys out of the car. And I made a conscious choice. Leave the keys there. Maybe he won't notice. This could be an escape route. Mm -hmm. Left the keys in the ignition. Good thinking. I know. Why was I even thinking? I wouldn't that? have thought of that. I mean, you probably would have. You think? Took, okay. All right. Yeah. I took my hand off, and the whole time I'm thinking he's going to remember. He's running at, at, you know, getting out of the car and running around the front to get me. And I'm thinking he's going to remember. He's going to remember. And he didn't. So I just left the keys right there, got out, followed him up. He knocked on the door. She opened the door. She goes, Pete, what are you doing out of jail? And who is she? And he said, blah, blah, blah. I escaped. I've got her with me. And I, I need a place to stay. I got to come here. Mm. I got to hide. And she went, I've got to, my children are coming home from school in a couple of hours. You have got to let me leave to keep them away. And he said, okay, you can leave, but do not call the cops. I will kill her if you do. Sure. Yeah. So she leaves. I remember as she walked out, I remember looking in her eyes and I literally said almost under my breath, please don't go. I don't know if she heard me or not, but I heard, I heard the words in my head. No, she did hear me because she went, I have to. And Uh she left. 
<clears throat> okay, well, fortunately, I don't know why he allowed me to bring my purse because I had Valium. I was taking Valium at the time. Oh my God, I take a half of a five milligram Valium to go to the dentist like once every two years. Yeah, yeah. And I fall asleep. I was taking four five milligram Valium per day. Oh boy. How was I functioning? Uh, anyway, wow. He, he let me, uh, I, at one point I asked him, I said, uh, I have some medication. Can I take the medication? And he let me, and I took two Valium, two five milligram. Why I didn't just fall over on the floor and like, go, I'm dead. I'm out. <laughs> Kill me if you want. I don't know. Again, that heightened yeah. thing, it just counteracts everything. Well, six hours I'm there. That is a long story. But I will tell you the one moment where I thought I was dead. Um, well, because you had another moment too. Didn't you have a moment where you had a chance to escape? Are we going to get to that? Several, lots. Oh, can can lots. we talk about those like a little yes. bit? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Because so I've heard the whole story. Like this isn't like fresh. To, it's, it was what, three or four years ago. So anyway, just. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> okay. So here's what happened. This, this, the, I mean, probably from the moment he pushed me out the door with the gun in my ribs, my brain started working on figure out a way to escape. I mean, it just, every intention I had was to figure out a way to escape. And when I got into the house with him, he was a donkey on the edge. I mean, he started pounding back that wild turkey and he was shaking and kept slamming the gun in my face. And, and he, and I somehow knew you've got to figure out a way to, to build some kind of a relationship with this guy. You've got to get him to like you. You've got to get him to let down his guard. And maybe if you do that, you will find a way to escape. Mm -hmm. So, I, but you couldn't, I couldn't just go, you know, you're kind of my type. I, I, I mean, I couldn't go there. I couldn't even, it was subtle. It was like, and this goes into your world. My, my survival mechanism informed me in my little poor state of mind, it informed me that if you are going to escape, you need to read everything that is going on here and figure it out and find your in. Mm -hmm. So um, slowly he would say something and I would just almost like a throwaway line. You know, he'd say, well, you were in, you didn't have people beating up on you your whole life. And almost in a throwaway line as if I didn't even want him to hear it. And believe me, this wasn't calculated. It wasn't conscious. Right. I didn't consciously go, oh, I'm going to throw away this line. I just, it did it. I went, yeah, well, that's not true. Very subtly, almost away from him. And he went, what? And then it gave me the door opening to tell him a little bit about my story. Mm -hmm. At which point, you know, he would kind of look at me skeptically and, and then I'd like, find another opportunity, but he kept that gun with him the whole time and constantly stop pointed at me and say, are you deceiving me? Because if you're deceiving me, I'll kill you. I've killed people before and I'll do it again. And I'm like, after several hours of this, I said, I don't I don't know what I can say to, to make you believe me. You either will or you won't. Well, at one point, and this was the, this was the pivotal moment. I guess this was it. Um, he put me in a chair in the living room and he pulled up a chair about five feet away from him. And he's just staring at me. He's holding the gun, just staring at me. I remember I was so cold, Tracy. I remember oh, I, I felt like my, the cells in my body had just come to a stop. I was uh -huh. so cold. And all of a sudden, after this long silence, he, um, he slowly raised the gun. He pointed it directly between my eyes. He took a deep breath. Uh -huh. And his exact words were, are you ready to die? Well, let's go back to the morning, about 7.15 yeah, uh -huh. in the morning, when I'm oh lying in bed thinking I'm ready to die once again. Uh -huh. Be careful what you wish for. Yeah, you had um, a choice. You had a choice. Like, oh my goodness! All right, I was it, this thing I had been look, wanting or thinking I had to have was being handed to me in a silver platter, and yeah. and it was in that moment that I realized, oh crap, no, I am yeah. not ready to die. <laughs> okay. Why now that you mention it? <laughs> um, but it was interesting because um, I. I, I heard myself respond because I knew how I responded in that moment was really important. Mm -hmm. 
And I heard myself respond. I didn't choose these words. I did not choose them. They came, they just happened. And I remember I looked at him, I took a breath and I said something along the lines of, if you're going to kill me, there's nothing I can do to stop you. You have the gun, uh-huh. you have all the power. And he just sat there with the pointing straight at me, looking at me. And then he lowered the gun and he said, why aren't you begging and screaming for your life? And again, words came out of my mouth. And I said, like I said, you've got the gun. You've got the power. Where did those words come from? Wow. I know, I know, I know. Well, ultimately that threw him off guard, I guess, because he wasn't expecting that. And he would just almost like shaking his head in disbelief, kept coming back to, if you're deceiving me, I'll kill you Uh kind of thing. And, um, and ultimately, so, okay, so here's, we're getting toward the end now. Yeah, yeah. At one point, he sits there. Do I have anything that even looks like a gun? <laughs> no, I don't. Okay, so he has the gun in his hand. Uh-huh. He's looking at me. Oh, mm, back up. Somewhere in the back of my brain again, I had to make him, and it was true, actually, um, believe that I was very afraid of guns, which I was. Uh-huh. But somehow or another, I knew that was an important piece of information for really? him you to just, know. You just kind of had the vibe. Had the vibe. Okay. Make sure he knows I don't like guns. Mm-hmm. So at one point, he's sitting there. He's holding the gun. He takes the barrel and turns around and hands it to me with the handle toward me. Uh-huh. And there was that moment. Again, slow it all down. It felt like about 30 minutes where I yeah, sat yeah. and stared at it. And I thought, Okay. Here's your opportunity. Yeah. But I knew it was a test. And so I kept in my head, I kept going, this is a test. This is a test. And so I just went like this and I went, why are you handing me that? And he said, take the gun, shoot me. And I said to him, I told you guns scare me. I don't want that thing. And he, again, he just sat there looking at me and there was one more chick, chick, check mark in the Maybe I can trust her column. Uh huh. Now, but you didn't think about actually shooting the guy. Like, yeah. I oh, would have shot no, no. The thought occurred. No, listen again. Fifty thousand thoughts came in my brain. Uh-huh. One of them was, "Oh my God, grab it and shoot him." And then the thing was, "Well, wait a minute. Hold on a second. Did he put bullets in there? Are there bullets in oh. there? If all of a sudden I try to shoot him and there's no bullet there, oh, then you're toast. Then we all." Oh, you are trying to deceive me. Uh huh. The other one was, is there a safety catch on it? I don't even know that. Is there? And then there was a big one, Tracy. And, and I, this is a personal one, but I, there was a thing in my head that said, could you at point blank range shoot a human being and watch him die? And okay. I couldn't do it. I oh. it just was like, it's not going to happen. I knew there was another way. Okay. I hope okay. there was another way. Okay. Now, Somewhere in all of this, I knew, because remember, I'm trying to establish a relationship with him. I kind of threw in this thing about how my life was horrible. Hey, it actually was. Um, And how nothing would make me happier than to escape this crazy place. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be great if we could help each other escape? And and again, it didn't happen all at once. I didn't even say those words all together in one Uh sentence. They got trickled in over six hours. And I just kept saying, all we need to do is go pick up my son. And that sounded real valid, you know, like, let's go pick up my son first and then we can bring him with us. Uh Um, I mean, this was this was not going to be an option to do that, but it sounded good to him. I knew in my brain. So um, he just began to trust me more and more. Okay, now. Okay, let's see if I can get this sequence right, because this is the end of it. Okay, okay so that I, he does the gun test. Then he's been drinking this wild turkey thing. I think it's yeah. bourbon. And uh, he, he says, um, no, 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 here it goes. I say to him, uh, after I had gotten some water from the refrigerator at one point, I said, I saw some hamburger meat in the refrigerator. Do you want me to make you a hamburger? Where'd that come from? I have no idea. And he goes, yeah. So I went in, made up a patty, I threw it in a pan. It was a gas stove. I turned the stove on. I come back into the living room to, to ask him what he wants on his hamburger. 
Um, and I see that he says, he just goes, uh, I'm, I'm going to go pee. And he gets up and he goes around the thing and he leaves the gun on the table. Now he's out of the room and the yeah. gun's on the table. Oh my gosh, I would have took that thing. <laughs> I would have. I, okay, I'm not going to nope. spoil it, but okay, keep going, keep going. Uh, well, so at this point, he goes, take the gun and shoot me. I went, I t- already told you that's a dead subject. I'm not talking about that gun anymore. And I, um, so he's walking out as he says that. I then, when I see him round the corner, I head for the back door. Now, okay, the kitchen, I have to turn around out of the living room to go into the kitchen. The kitchen has a doorway that goes to the porch. The okay. porch then goes to the car. Got it. So I, second I see him go in, I run out of the thing. I head for the kitchen door. And at, when I, the kitchen door has a bolt lock. And so I run up to it. My heart is pounding out of my freaking chest. I slam the, the deadbolt over and it, swear to God, it went. So you couldn't sneak anymore. No, I, I knew he heard it. Mm-hmm. I knew he heard it. I knew he heard the lock open mm-hmm. from where he was in the bathroom. I mean, and, and my heart jumped out of my skin and I ran back over to the living room door and then casually walked in the living room to see if he was still in the bathroom. Uh-huh. I listened. He was peeing. I could hear him. Uh-huh. So he didn't hear it. And I said, do you want ketchup or mustard? And he said, I don't know what he said. And I went, and that's when now I've got the kitchen door open. Yeah. I run through the kitchen door. I don't think I actually opened the screen door. I think I like flew through it with my body. You know how to yeah, have the yeah. body in front. Uh-huh. I just knocked it off its hinges, jumped in the car, fired it up. Oh, and this is the thing. Remember I'm at a cul-de-sac yeah, yeah. facing here. Uh-huh. I literally have to back up, go forward, back up, oh, no. go forward, back up and go forward to get out of this place. Uh-huh. And I hear bullets. Uh, I hear them. Uh-huh. I feel like they're coming over the top of the car. Sidebar again. There were no bullets. He did okay. not shoot at me. He did he not see have... me leave. Oh. In my brain, I heard bullets. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Just because my imagination now was out of control. Yeah. When yeah. I got a straightaway on that dirt road, I uh-huh. floored it. And yeah. here was the thing. It was lined with trees uh-huh. and I was fishtailing back and forth down this dirt road. I mean, like I, why I didn't lose control of that car, I have no idea because I was uh-huh. going so fast and I was shaking like this. And when I got to the main road, I didn't stop and look both ways. I just whipped out on that road and just, I could have been killed. I should have been killed (laughs) Went flying down the road. And I could see ahead. There was a traffic light about half a mile down the road and and cars were stopped at the traffic light. And I actually saw that there was a police car stopped underneath the traffic light. So I pulled up, slammed on the brakes, uh, jumped out of the car. Now at this point, I am in a bathrobe. You can fill in the blanks on that one. Yeah. Yeah. And I go running up to the car the window and I'm banging on the window and he's like, <laughs> I love to do these reenactments. Yeah, he's sitting yeah. here and he's like rolling. Remember the roll down the window thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like rolling down the window while this crazy lady's pounding on his window. And Tracy, I opened my mouth to say things and I couldn't talk. I could, oh. everything jammed up and I was just, I was just stuttering and spitting and I just couldn't talk. And then all of a sudden we were surrounded by 10 cop cars, detectives, cars, you name it. Um, apparently they were watching the house because uh-huh. that woman did go tell mm. the police that we were there. Um, so they were watching the house. Now, sadly, it turns out they thought when I left, when the car left, they thought he was in the car and they were oh. going to shoot the tires out. Fortunately, oh. they didn't because <laughs> it was just me. But yeah. um, and and that's when, you know, that's when all my defenses just crashed and I was just a puddle. Mm. Um, had to go to the police station, make a statement, do all that. But it was, um, you know, I look back on the whole thing and he did ultimately get he left that house, went to another house, kidnapped two more people, 
made them take him to another house and that's where he was apprehended. So he now, was did, didn't one of those houses burn down? Mine, the one I was in. Yeah, Remember had, the gas stove the with gas the burger? Stove. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> once they figured out he wasn't in the car with me, they figured he was in the house. So they threw tear gas in the house. <sighs> and remember the gas stove with the burner going? Yeah. Yeah. So, but he'd already left the house by then, run on foot over to another house and kidnapped two people. So, wow. Yeah. So, um, but you know, Tracy, again, for me, there was two, so many things I walked away with. One was, I don't know that I could have gotten the deep down rock bottom knowledge awareness that I really did want to live. So that was the greatest gift to me, I think. Um, Secondly, what I learned so much about the power of of building rapport with people, yeah, huh? even especially the people who are, you don't like very much, I mean, mm-hmm. or, you know, nobody's going to run into one with a 357 Magnum, I hope, but, um, you know, I really, really, truly got how even in the most difficult situations, you can build rapport and establish a relationship with someone. If you really work at it, you can do that. Well, uh, and I don't even know how, so our instinct, we've all got those instincts to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I also, really walked away with the appreciation of how bad things happen to people every day. Um, Some way, way worse than what happened to me. And, and, you know, we've heard it from every single person who steps up on a stage and talks. It is just not about what happens to you. It's how do you interpret it? And I interpreted that as the greatest gift I'd ever been given that if it hadn't been for this situation, I think I would have succumbed to my illness and taken my own life. Now, now how how long did it take you to get to that because you don't just walk out and go yay I'm no, healed. I am right? so. whole complete and satisfied yay yeah, yeah no yeah. um fortunately I had been working with a social worker who um was uh uh like he everybody in my town knew about it, it was the first hostage case in forever so everybody in the whole town was on alert mm-hmm. um and he worked at a social service agency where um I was going like whenever I needed to, which was a lot, but they only charged me a dollar per session because it was on a sliding scale fee and I had no money. Um, And he immediately called me and said, I'm here. I'm here. When you are ready to move yourself up and get over to my office, come. And so I did as soon as possible. And he was the one that helped me navigate this, helped me like, okay, let's figure out what this really meant. And what, you know, did it mean that you should be afraid for the rest of your life? Because there are a lot of bad people that you are pretty bad because look, they're coming at you with guns. Now Um, you should hide under your bed and never trust men. And, you know, is that what you want to conclude from this? Cause you could, and nobody would blame you or you could come up with a different interpretation. And I did with his help that it truly truly was the best gift I'd ever been given. Uh-huh. Um, wow. yeah. You know what? I'll tell you what, I'll tell you exactly what. And I think this is powerful. Okay. I, I, while I didn't feel like I was in control of all those wise things I said and how I kept myself in control, I didn't feel like I was in control of that. The fact was I was. Uh-huh. And so one of the things I left with was, and he pointed this out to me was, do you have any idea how strong you are? How quick you are? How smart you are? Yeah. Yeah. He said, did you get that? Because I had never viewed myself as strong, smart, or quick. Never. I was like, you know, a victim. (laughs) Remember that? And all of a sudden, I started to redefine myself. Like, dang, if I could do that, well, then I can do anything. Uh Now, it took a while to build on that with his help. I ultimately went back to school much later and became a social worker because I thought- Oh, really? I didn't know that. Okay. My undergrad's in social work. So I I really, yeah, it's all about human behavior and I wanted to know more and I wanted to help people. But I figured out pretty quickly that after graduate or after undergrad that I didn't want to actually be a social worker, but I sure did love all the information I got. Really helped me understand people. Well, now let's talk about how how you're able to roll that into- your trial consulting that that you've done so so let's let's take an overview what is trial consulting just so so everybody is on the same page and then let's dive in a little bit okay uh it's something you would be great at um it's so I, I, i've done a little bit i've uh, just just a little bit here and there so yeah it's um well i I did two different things. I became a CLE provider, continuing legal Mm -hmm. education provider for attorneys. Mm -hmm. Um, And that came after graduate school because I had 
always worked as a professional actor for my whole life, mm-hmm. whenever I could. And uh, so I went back to school to get a graduate degree in acting from Florida State University. And it's a very intense three-year program. And I was living with a lawyer at the time. And I would come home at, you know, we worked from you know, eight in the morning to midnight every day, seven days a week or six days a week. And I would come home and tell him what we were doing in class. And, and he kept going, lawyers need this. Lawyers need this. And I said, yeah, they do. So when I graduated, he went, you need to figure out how to turn this into a one day course for trial lawyers, Uh how to, um, we called it acting techniques and the art of persuasion, but that was just people just have such a crazy idea of what acting means. Somehow it means pretending it means faking mm-hmm. and it's just the opposite. It means behaving really truthfully, mm-hmm. really truthfully in a given set of circumstances. So I had to change the title because people just got the wrong thing, a wrong impression of that. But what happened was um, I, I created the course. And one of my professors at grad school helped me design it such that the Florida bar would look at it and go, yeah, this has substance. And they approved it. Mm-hmm. So I was teaching lawyers in uh, full day classes with them, like six or seven at a time, put them on camera, uh, video record it. They do a three to five minute opening and closing. And then we play it back and we sit and watch. Now we're the jury. Let's and you get to be the jury too. you who just did that presentation. Come sit in the jury with us. Let's take a look at this. How does it come across to you? Do you believe this guy? Is he do you think he's honest? Do you think he's being truthful? What's what what's happening that you don't think he's being truthful? Mm-hmm. You know, so we would dissect it like that. Ooh, and it was, that. Oh, so cool. It was so cool. One guy got up, kind of you know, shuffled his notes and kind of looking at his notes and did his thing. And he was like a real hot shot. I could tell he was like. Yeah, I got this. I know how to do this. He sat back down. We played the video back. And I I always ask the person who just was on camera first, what did you think? And he went, well, I just got my money's worth. And I said, why is that? He goes, if that's how I show up that ill prepared that I'm looking down at my notes and shuffling around and mumbling and mumbling. I'm surprised I ever won a case. Oh, wow. I know. I went, okay, you can go home. (laughs) You're done. (laughs) Um, so, so yeah, so it just, it, because it was, I had learned and studied for three years on what does it mean to stand, ground yourself. Uh-huh. I had an acting teacher once who just said, look, just plant your feet and tell the truth. Yeah. And I thought, damn, that's good. Yeah. So I was trying to help lawyers do that. I'll, and I'll give you an interesting question that I got. And I want your opinion on this because I think okay. this is cool. When I worked for public defenders, Mm-hmm. I would go in-house to a big, you know, maybe there's a hundred public defenders on staff at one of the counties in Florida or the districts in count in Florida. And I would, um, we'd work, like I said, six or seven at a time. And I got this question so much. Here it was. How do I get up and convince a juror, juries, to, to, um, that, I believe in this guy that I don't believe in. Uh-huh. I'm representing criminals. Right. And what do I do when I think they're guilty? Uh-huh. How do I, how do that not leak through while I'm talking to them that they'll know on some level that I don't even believe in? Right, right. Okay, so here's the answer. And yeah, I want to know. I, I really want to know. I figured you would. And this is, this is the one that takes some conversation. Mm-hmm. And this is where... It really deserves a big conversation because my response to them was, okay, what do you believe in? And they said, well, what does that mean? I go, well, you're up there defending this guy. Uh-huh. There's a reason why you chose this profession. Oh. And they, well, I said, why is that? And they went, well, I believe in the system. Uh-huh. I believe that you're innocent until proven guilty. I believe that everyone is has the right to a fair trial. I believe that even when you have every fact that looks like it's X, if you're missing one fact, the answer could be Z. Yeah. And I went, that's what you believe in? Mm-hmm. Get up and do your opening now. Uh-huh. Because that's what you believe in. So when you're up there and you're saying, you know, uh, you know, my client, you know, was, I don't even know what the case might be. You know, he's, um, let's say he was found with some drugs and he sure. said someone planted them there. Uh-huh. You know, and that's everybody's defense. Oh, yeah, that's the... wait, wait a minute. He goes, and do we? And so when you're talking to the jury, say, here's what we believe. 
that every single person is innocent until proven guilty, proven guilty. Have they proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that someone did not plant those there, those drugs there? Could there be one moment that someone wasn't looking that someone actually did plant those there? Do you have a doubt? Do you have a doubt? Because if you have a doubt, you can't say he's guilty. And all of a sudden I'm like, Yes, that's it. You know, because it's so, 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 so you had a, you have a focus on the process versus their actual belief, like in, in talking about things that they do believe in versus maybe one that they don't. And I guess there's, there's still an ethical question as to, you know, why they picked that job if that's what they knew they were going to be doing. Um, No, because here's what, here's why they picked that job. Okay. And I know this because I've worked with so many public defenders. They truly, truly believe that every single person has the right to a fair trial. Mm -hmm. They also truly believe that there have been people who have been convicted uh, who are not guilty. And that makes their hair stand on it. Yeah. 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 So, so it's not about let's trick these people into thinking anything. It's about carrying with you that doubt yourself that Mm -hmm. there could be something that happened that makes it look like, the, in fact, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, the uh, uh, astrophysicist. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I haven't studied a lot of that, but I know that. Okay. Well, he's an astrophysicist and he's gorgeous and he's smart and he's funny. And he's the, like the executive director of the Hayden planetarium or something. He's amazing. Um, what did I call him? A neuro? Uh, no, no. He's an astrophysicist. Astrophysicist. Yeah. 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 Well, he gets called a lot as an expert witness in trials. And um, and what he basically tells people and what, what one of the positions he holds, if I'm not mistaken, is that you really can't trust eyewitnesses. Oh, There's you so totally much can't. Can't. Yeah, no, no, you totally can't trust them. Right. Um, yeah. So if that's the case, do you understand where a public defender could say, look, she says this lady says, absolutely. I saw him go into that store at that time. Mm-hmm. Oh, OK, OK, ma'am. Can I see your glasses for just a second? And the lady takes her glasses off and hands them to him and say, oh, uh, I see they're a little dirty. Can I have your clean? Uh, let me clean them up for you, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. or something or whatever that there's. And all of a sudden the jury goes, were her glasses clean that day? Could she see that day? Is that a current prescription? Well, well, I, I, I think you're right. And I think also um, what I've learned, because because I've done just a tiny bit of trial consulting and to, to the point where I've gone to trials um just to watch because they'll let anyone anyone in usually I mean if it's a real big one sometimes they restrict it but I've been to some municipal ones down here in Boulder and to, and and uh and I'll walk in because they let the jury in and I was like I just walked in with the jury and sat there and then all the jury goes and sits in the box eventually and I'm just still sitting there the judge looks at me and he's like what are you doing I was like watching he's like okay <laughs> and so, and so I love there's, it. there's 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 different um protocols in different states and and in some states i think louisiana the the lawyers can look at the jury during questioning uh or or sorry before questioning that's what it is they can turn around and say hello in colorado you can't right and all these little things are little things that you can do to start to persuade the jury and get them to fall your way even just a little bit and and one of the things that I noticed and maybe you have some comments on this is in trials a lot of times the um uh they'll they'll kind of take a little break and they're like all right we need counsel up to the bench right and for the jury you're just you're sitting there you're like what the hell like what's going on why can't I like that actually in them creates um like some negativity right and 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 in some states, they'll allow a lawyer to say, you know what, this could affect the outcome of the trial will be just a second. And and even that can calm people down like just a little bit, but it's not protocol everywhere. So like little, what are some little things that, that you trained folks to do besides speaking their truths? Do you have any, any tips like that? Yeah, uh, I ju- here's the thing I, I wanted them to walk away with. In communication, as you know, everything communicates something. 
every single thing, words spoken, unspoken, the way you stand, the way you move, what you're wearing, how it's moving, everything communicates something, but the meaning of the message only lies in what the receiver takes it to mean. I wanted them to get that full tilt boogie. For instance, I had one guy who comes in, he's got long to train one day. He's got long hair, big beard, long hair, something. And, um, and I, and this was back, this, come on, we're, we're going back in the nineties now. And I said to him, like one, so long ago, but it was, I, I know. Like right. And I said to him at one point, I said, um, and he was very full of himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I went a lot of cases and I said, have you ever thought, I'm just asking, what would you think about, um, cutting your hair? How would you, how would you feel about that? I don't need to do that. I win a lot of cases. And I said, I wonder how many cases you'd win if you did cut it. Mm. How many more you'd win if you did. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, it's just because here's the thing. Meaning of the message lies only in what the receiver takes it to mean. The jury's sitting there making assumptions. So many assumptions. I'll give you some assumptions. You want some assumptions I, yeah. I've heard over the years? Yeah. One, um, one, cause I get to go ask the jury questions afterwards, do a little polling afterwards here in Florida, we can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the, uh, a, a woman was in an accident. She was suing the insurance company with a, for a bad back yeah. and <clears throat> she didn't get the money she wanted. Nobody could figure it out. I was talking to the jury afterwards. And the question was, <clears throat> what, what, what led you to that, to that, um, verdict. And they said, one of them said, every day she came in, she had on a different outfit, of course, and her toenails were painted to match her dress. Oh my goodness. How bad could her back be if she could lean over and paint her toes every day? (gasps) What? Oh my God. Right? I know. And there was a study that was done after some big case. I think it was in Washington, DC. They walked out, they pulled all the jurors and there was one word that showed up in every person's comment about why they um, voted the way they did uh-huh. uh, for this one side. I can't remember what it was, plaintiff, defendant, whatever it was, but why did they select that one, that side? And there was one word that showed up in absolutely every single person's comments, and it was the word like. Yeah. I liked the attorney. I liked his case. I liked the defendant. I liked what he said. I liked this. So there's something in there about this likability factor that I think is critically important. I mean, we've got, you know, we've got uh, in public defender's offices, they'll put uh, defendants in the right color clothes, you know, because they don't have, probably don't have a suit. If it's a guy, let's say he doesn't have a suit, but they have some clothes down there somewhere that they kind of loan to people and there's certain colors that are more warm and friendly than other colors well yeah and and you know what the worst color for men to wear is Hmm. is a brown suit because it's not seen as um like there's been studies and it's like the least uh trustworthy also like the least expensive like it's just it's not um yeah it's and a lot of times what the guys will do is and I know Mitt Romney did this. They'll take their suit, gray or um, black, right, to the tailor, and they'll have the buttons move down a little bit so it shows their chest a little bit more. Interesting. Which, is, which so they're seen as more powerful, right? Because you never see them in like a double-breasted, like uh, one of those like button up higher kind of mm-hmm. suits. Like you mm-hmm. never see uh, people running for office in those and, and they have those buttons moved down so that they show more power. It's so yeah. fascinating. All these kinds of things come back from, from so long ago. You know why? Have you ever known? I did not know this. I think it's the coolest thing ever. I studied Shakespeare a lot when I was in grad school and the whole idea about the men, especially in like, I want to say France, but even in England, because uh-huh. those things where they had like knickers mm-hmm. because their calves were a sign of strength and power and gorgeousness. So they showed off their calves. And if you look at the way they bow, they stick one foot forward yeah. and then they bow Well, they're showing off their calves. So, I mean, oh. there's all these old subtle things that come from history that we didn't oh even goodness. know anything about. Wow. So, Who now you know, baby, show off yeah. your calves. Wow. Wow. Okay. So we don't want to keep you all day. Now you got stuff to do. What is one final tip that you may have for people um, about like maybe a life lesson where they can move forward 
um, more powerfully, maybe not in a victim uh, mentality or maybe getting more of what they want in life. Like, tell us about that one thing. Okay. I, I, and I hadn't thought about this, so I'll just go with the first thought that came in my brain. And it's all about, um, I think it's about Mm self-awareness. I think it's about being able to take a deep breath and, and give yourself a little bit of an evaluation and ask yourself, First of all, if you're not getting the results that you want everywhere in life, then ask yourself, what am I doing or saying that's getting me that result when I want this result? Mm -hmm. Because if so many of our behaviors, over 98%, according to some studies, so many of our behaviors are automatic and unthinking. We're not even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're just kind of going on autopilot and there's some things that are work that's working for us and some things that don't. So you just take a little inventory and go, you know, am I a little critical sometimes? Do I get a little impatient? Um, do, am I, um, am I, do I procrastinate so much that I stress everybody else out around me? What's going on with you that, and here's your hint. It's things people have told you in the past. And you justified it by going, well, it's not that bad. Oh, I'm a little critical. It's not that bad. Oh, I'm I'm a few pounds overweight. It's not that bad. You know, Um, it's those kinds of things like that where you go, you know what? I can change this. Now, that's not easy. Changing a behavior that you've been, you know, neural pathways have wired you to keep doing X. You're going to make some new neural pathways and start doing it this way. But I think that's the key to your success is like, you know what? What's going on here that doesn't work for me? I'm, yeah. And if you if you live with someone who you love and trust and they love and trust you, you can ask them, is there anything I do that, you know, I'm sure it's not that bad, but if yeah, you I stopped asking my husband thing, that, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my little tip. It's, it takes a lot of courage to do that, but it I think does. it's the pathway to. Oh, wow. Well, Linda, thank you so much for taking a minute to come on Frog Bus and you are just a gem. How can people get a hold of you when they need a funny keynote speaker? Because we're going to need a lot of that, both virtual and in person, coming out of the pandemic. How do people get a hold of you? LindaLarson.com. Easy. And that's L-A-R-S-E-N, LindaLarson.com. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time.